It is the Healthy Families Podcast, and I am your host, Jenny Hatch. Today, I was going to interview Goel from Investigations in Ritual Abuse, but he is 21 minutes late to the podcast, and I always get a little bit nervous when I have a guest and they don't show up on time. It makes me wonder what they're up to. What's going on? We were going to talk about the Hamlin case and the decision by the judge yesterday to allow David Lee Hamblin to get out of jail by paying bail. Formerly, he was arrested and sitting in jail without bail. But yesterday, the judge said, yes, you can pay $100,000 in bail and get out of jail, but go into house arrest with a boot, making certain that you don't skip town with geofencing and other measures to make certain that he's truly in the state of Utah when the court case comes before a judge. So I did a preliminary video report on the hearing, and I just wanted to play it for you. We have a rapist in Lincoln Park. He's climbing in your windows. He's snatching your people up. Trying to rape so you got these. Hide your kids. Hide your wife. Hide your kids. Hide your wife. Hide your kids. Hide your wife. Can't have your husband because they're raping everybody out here. You don't have to go and confess. We're looking for you. We don't mind you. We don't mind you. So you can run and tell that. Run and tell that. Run and tell that. So that was the end of my video report from last night. I thought that song was appropriate as a summary of the Hamblin case being deferred, kicked down the road by the judge. Boy, she was sure anxious to let everybody know who was watching that we were not allowed to talk about anything that happened during that bail hearing. She didn't want anybody recording it or doing screen grabs. I was prepared to do all of that because I hadn't really read the fine print uh, regarding how it works. Apparently, if I had recorded that hearing and shared it here on my podcast, I would have been in contempt of court and potentially been able to be arrested myself. So it does make me a little bit skittish about discussing the case. Uh, how much can I, as a journalist, share with 
my listeners and my readers online. Good question, because I've already shared a lot. And I was hoping that Goel would call to be my guest today so that we could deconstruct what happened in that courthouse. I did organize a demonstration against it. And even though I'm in Colorado and the case was heard in Manti, Utah, I did have 12 people show up. And I personally think these are the 12 bravest people in the state of Utah, given the nature of the case, who's involved, and um, how powerful they are. 12 people showed up. They had signs. They demonstrated against David Hamblin being allowed out on bail. And they went into the courtroom and watched the hearing live, which also is very brave because then you have to sign in. You have to give up your phones. You know, people who are there observing that you're there in person. And although I was shared a couple of photos from the rally that I published on my Substack, uh, these people did not want to be identified. They wanted me to block out their faces. So I did. And I really think that's a big part of the story because when you have citizens in a state who are against something and appreciate free speech and freedom of the press, and they are too afraid to go on camera as a protester, that they're afraid that there might be some sort of blowback on them, that's also part of the story. And so... I'm just so glad that 12 people showed up. There were quite a number of people listening to the case live on the broadcast yesterday. I didn't do a full count, but I would guess there was probably a good 25 people who listened in, including myself. Uh, there was no audio. I was not able to listen. I was curious to talk to Giles to see if he was able to hear what they said. All that I had was a video and then a very poorly um produced transcript that had many glitches, many bleeps, and uh, it was difficult to follow what they were saying with just that transcript. But I, you know, I did it. I followed it for the whole thing until the ending, and it was obvious which direction that the whole thing was going to go. So I was not surprised when he was given bail and said, yeah, you can get out and go into house arrest. I know for a fact that his victims are very nervous right now because some of them have told me they are. And I just feel like there is so much over-concern for the feelings of perpetrators in our body politic today and in the greater culture than there is for victims, that it's just a travesty on our justice system to have all of these victims so nervous about um, what may happen to them down the road if they report a crime to the police or try to make a case and go to court and sue for damages. It's, it's a chilling thing that happens when a perpetrator like this is allowed to get out on bail because it makes the victims feel incredibly afraid. So I shared that video in the hopes of lightening the mood, the, um, Bed Intruder song was a thing about 10 years ago, and definitely kind of sets the tone for where I'm at, which is, I'm reconciled to my fate. I have pissed off a lot of people in the last few months with my own journalism, 
And at times I have felt somewhat paralyzed by fear, worried. And then <clears throat> something enters into my heart and I just don't feel afraid anymore. And I know it's everything's going to be okay and I feel peaceful. And at the end of the day, um, we just have to go forward and trust that the good things and the right things will happen. So I'm going to just read Goel's report because I um, would love to have had him here in person. I hope he's okay. But at least we can hear his words and his summation of the trial, which was excellent. He titled his post, and this is Investigations in Ritual Abuse on Substack. He titled his post, David Hamblin Gets Bail. Subheading was Sometimes the Bad Guys Win. By Goel, 16 hours ago, just after listening to the case. Today's motion to reconsider bail hearing and Judge Larson's Manti courtroom featured all of the hijinks one might have expected. The public was present to a much greater degree than beforehand, with one WebEx observer be being booted from the webcast of the hearing for posting a hand clapping emoji. That was a funny moment during the hearing. Uh, one of the attorneys representing the victim said something and this emoji popped up of somebody clapping the hands and the judge was all over it. She was like, who did that? Who did that? Get them out of here. There'll be no commentary. And you know, I don't know where these judges get off in making everything so private and so controlled. And we just can't let the public see what's happening here because dot, 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 who knows? But somebody puts out a hand clapping emoji and that's a reason to just go all crazy and say, get out of here. You can't be here. You are beyond the pale. This is so un-American. More from Goel. When Nathan Quintero, another observer via WebEx, asked if he could interject and was promptly told that he could not by Judge Larson, David Lee Hamblin's attorney, Leah Aston, argued that the state had not presented clear and convincing evidence in either the earlier American Fork hearing or today's hearing that David Lee Hamblin constituted a current danger to the community or a threat to the victim or the community. Juab County Attorney Peter or Ryan Peters then proceeded to do just that, presenting the following. Evidence that David Lee Hamblin had administered peyote, I think it's peyote, to a 16-year-old girl at one of his healing circles in 2020. Evidence from Hamlin's custody hearing in his divorce case, in which the court found by clear and convincing evidence that he had sexually abused two of his daughters. Proof in the form of Hamlin's own confession to abuse of patients in his therapy practice for which Hamblin lost his license to practice psychology. The American Fork case, which details allegations of a more serious nature than those in the Manti case. Hamblin's ongoing use of peyote and his administration of peyote to children, including the fact that he had a history of administering peyote to children 
including all four of his daughters, plus the 2020 16-year-old. Judge Larson found that the state had carried its burden of presenting substantial evidence of David Lee Hamblin's guilt, but that evidence was not sufficient to establish that he was a current danger to the two victims in his present cases or the wider community. Interesting, prosecutor Ryan Peters didn't raise the possibility that Hamblin was a danger to victims whose cases have yet to reach the court. It is entirely likely that Hamblin knows and his accomplices know who he abused over the past 40 years. It would have been a prudent tactical move to mention this, given that Peters also said there was at least one other victim whose case would, have, would be brought in the future. Getting a phone call. I'm hoping it's go. Hello. Hey, Jenny. It's Goel. I just got your email. Perfect timing. I went ahead and started the podcast, and I was just reading your summation when you called. So I'm live on the air. Welcome to the uh, sh- welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, indeed. Man, I when everything was over yesterday, I I just had to laugh. I mean, you have to find the funny in these things or else you go bananas. So what was your response? My response was twofold. I had hoped that Judge Larson might go in the other direction. I felt like Peters did a good job under the circumstances making the argument. Uh, Brian Peters is a Jewett County prosecutor handling the case out of Nancy and American Fork. Um, so there's two cases currently with two victims against David Lee Hamlin. The cases got rotated out of Utah County to a special prosecutor, Brian Peters of UF County, because of the obvious conflict of interest with David Levitt being the Utah County prosecutor. Um, David Levitt, of course, appears in the Hamlin victim statements as an accused child rapist and child trafficker. Uh, So, in general, Ryan Peters did a good job. Um, There were certain things that I felt like he could have been a little more strident and challenging, such as whether or not David Lee Hamlin could afford $100,000 bail. Yeah, and you you made a point in your report. What about all the victims over the last 40 years, of which David Hamlin is very aware, but we may not be, and they are also being quelled and shoved to the side? It is the big risk, and I mean, what Brian Peters did not do is make the argument along those lines that David Lee Hamlin knows who he abused, and so do any accomplices that he had. Um... He alluded to the allegations in 2014 made by Hamlin's daughters. Um, But what he didn't do was tie that into the rest of the allegations that they made, where they named Noah Krzysznik and uh, Carla Jemison's daughter explicitly as victims of the Hamlin group. And in particular, 
they alleged that Noah Kershusnik was abused directly by David Lee Hamlin as part of his, I guess what you would call pedophile training, uh, in which he sold his techniques in manipulating his own daughters to comply with ritual abuse to other families within the alleged LDS Church of Satan. Peters didn't make allusion to that. I don't think he really wants to go down the road of talking about a, quote, LDS Church of Satan. But he could have done that without getting into the weeds on whether or not an LDS Church of Satan exists. He could have just said this man has been alleged to have abused scores of other victims. And, in fact, he's been accused of training other adults how to abuse their children. Um, and... In that respect, he would have driven home the point that there are other victims out there, and releasing David Lee community not only encourages David Lee Hamlin, it also encourages the adults who hired him for the training in how to abuse their children. Um, sources that have said that Utah County Sheriff's Office has a list of 20 individuals that they're investigating for these crimes. It's not just David Lee Hamlin, it's David Lee Hamlin and 19 other adults. Um, it stands to reason that many of those names overlap with the Hamlin victim statements from 2012 and 2014. Um, the fact that Peters did not get into that, I thought was a real disservice to those victims. Um, the fact that Peters did not challenge whether or not David Lee Hamlin could truly afford $100,000 cash bail was another tactical misstep, I thought. I mean, on the one hand, David Lee Hamlin has the money to afford six months' worth of legal fees um, with two very high-priced attorneys. He also has the means to pay for a private probation service to supervise things like his GPS ankle monitor, and geofencing and policing his home detention, it stands to reason that he has some means. Now, it might be an inconvenience to him to pay a $100,000 cash bond, but I do think that Ryan Peters should have said, we don't see any documentation here from the defense that he is truly destitute and can't afford $100,000 cash bond. We're taking their word for it. I want to see his bank statements. I want to see his money market statements, so on and so forth. He could have doubled down in that direction. He did not. He just simply allowed the defense to proffer that without any documentation, which I thought was a strategic and tactical misstep on his part. Um, but the bottom line is we didn't get the result that we wanted yesterday. Uh, and that is typical in cases such as these, especially early on. Right. I've been doing this for 22 years. And early stages of any case against the pedophile network, you take a lot of L's. You take a lot of losses. And if you persist and you are really diligent and you work hard at uncovering the network, eventually you get your W's. So to those out there who are discouraged 
by the result from yesterday, what I would say to them is, this is par for the course at this stage. From the time I started investigations in ritual abuse, I always told people, you're talking 12 to 18 months before we start referring cases to civil attorneys and criminal prosecutors for them to review what we found and to bring these people to justice, whether it's in a civil court or a criminal court. This is going to be a long and protracted fight. It's not going to happen overnight. And it's something I've tried to prepare people for since I started the investigations of ritual abuse substack in October of this past year. So part of it is setting a realistic expectation for people. And I try to say it till I'm blue in the face. In my experience, it's 12 to 18 months. And that's under the best circumstances. When you start running into obstacles, which are plentiful in, in sex abuse cases, it can be 24 months. The challenge for us is to keep this case in the public's mind over that time. That means generating content on Substack. It means doing podcast appearances and media interviews. It means doing whatever you can to keep this case in the public's eye over that time period. And that means breaking developments in the case. That means doing the research and the legwork. Um, what was put... what was the final count on your petition to give him no bail? Last I checked, it was like 500. Did you get more than that? Yeah, up to 800 by the time of the hearing. Oh, that's great. Uh, I'll check the final. So we're at 825 signatures. Um, right now. And I uh, I had a confirmation that we had 12 people who showed up to the demonstration. I personally think they're 12 of the bravest people in the state of Utah. None of them wanted to be identified or come on my podcast or even share their photos. So I was given two photos that I uh, put something over their faces so nobody could see them. But all of them went into the court, listened to it live. And then we had probably a good 30 people listening online. I was surprised by some of the names of those who were there to listen. And thanks, thanks to my uh, lack of organization, I, I was saved from uh, being a contempt of court because I, I was all ready to podcast the whole thing live. And then I, you pointed out to me that, oh, that Jenny, that's illegal. So, so I didn't do that. But I was curious, could you hear the audio? Because I could not. All I saw was a very poorly transcribed uh you know series of of words but no audio i had plenty of audio i had no problems with the audio so much uh but then again i have managed to upgrade to a really strong internet connection even though i live in the middle of nowhere um shout out to t-mobile's 5g internet uh for people like me who largely live off grid. Well, we, is, we have scream, uh, we have screaming fast internet. 
I don't think that was it. I think they made it so I couldn't hear. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Maybe you pissed off the powers that be in Manti in Utah. Oh, just so you know, the locals call it Manti. Manti? Yes. <laughs> I'm clearly not a local. Uh, but... In Manta, you know, maybe you have pissed off the powers that be in the past, and I, I don't know. I can't speak to that. Well, um, th there was that one moment of fun when somebody put out a hand-clapping emoji, and I was feeling the same way in my heart. And uh, the judge, she just reacted so, it was so funny. Well, judges have to keep control of their courtroom. And so I think she took a sledgehammer to something that maybe it would have required a fly swatter. Um, but she wanted to discourage anybody from jumping in. She recognized at the beginning, because I've attended the prior hearings via WebEx, and she never issued, like, the pretty warnings that she issued at this hearing where she said, she warned people about courtroom decorum right up front before the hearing got underway. She had not previously done that. So there was a recognition on the part of Judge Larson that the public's interest was much higher in this particular hearing than it had been in the past. And if there was a presence of people, I think the fact that we had people in the courtroom definitely registered with Judge Larson. Uh, because I don't think that was the case previously. Yeah, and I think because I organized the demonstration so late, you know, I, I did do it pretty much as soon as I heard about the hearing, but I didn't do a lot to get the word out, you know, just a little bit of promotions. They may not have even been aware that we were getting that organized until you started talking about it, which I was very grateful for, because people immediately started contacting me after you did your post. And I thought, well, maybe we'll have some people show up. One of the people on the ground who was in communication with me said it was very cold and incredibly windy. And she wondered if that had harmed our numbers. But I was still thrilled. I was still thrilled that 12 people showed up. I thought that was awesome. You have to understand, I mean, Manti, as the locals call it, is like 90 minutes from Salt Lake and Provo, minimum. And that's in good weather. Um, so it is a challenge to get people out there. I think if the case were proceeding in like Salt Lake or, you know, Provo, we have much higher turnout because people wouldn't have to drive 90 minutes. Um, but them's the brakes, I guess. Well, another, and another part of the story is that I paid a hundred bucks to get a press release sent everywhere in Utah. And they, the company came back at me and said, oh, you did it wrong. So I fixed it, sent it again, came back. Oh, still is not good enough. That happened to me twice. And then finally they were like, we can give you a refund. We just can't do this. And I was like, what the heck? People can do press releases about anything, you know? And the fact that they would not publish that press release, I moved to plan B, which was I started contacting news agencies in Utah through their news tips hotlines. So I contacted several and one of them called me back yesterday. It was ABC News in Utah. And the producer from that uh, establishment did a wonderful interview on Zoom with me for 15 minutes 
before the hearing started. And so I was really thrilled with her in-depth knowledge of the case, the questions she asked me. And I'm really curious to see what ABC News comes up with because there has been such a, a dearth of information from the mainstream media. Even somebody like Adam Herbitz has pretty much stopped reporting. So, you know, we'll see what happens there. I was also contacted by Derek Bros of The Last American Vagabond, and he's doing a story on it today as well. So that's that's Derek good. Following me on Twitter uh, yesterday. So shout out to Derek Bros um, doing the Lord's work, bringing attention to this. Um, so basically, the next date is May 3rd at 2.30 p.m. Mountain Time. There's going to be oral arguments on Lee Ashton, who is David Lee Hamlin's defense attorney. There's going to be oral arguments on her motion to dismiss with prejudice and her secondary most arguments for collateral estoppel on the lesser charges that were brought in an amended information by Ryan Peters. So what we're facing on May 3rd is Layasson isn't just moving to dismiss the original charges against David Lee Hamlin, which she argued were barred by the statute of limitations. She is arguing to dismiss the lesser charges as well. Uh, in the amended information, she's arguing that the state is collaterally stopped or barred from bringing those charges. Um, so she's trying to get the entire case in uh, Manti thrown out, dismissed with prejudice. So that's going to be a big hearing, May 3rd, 2.30 p.m. Mountain Time. Yeah, and let's just make the announcement right now. I know I'm in Colorado, and I feel somewhat sheepish about organizing demonstrations when I don't have the ability to be there myself. I'm disabled. I'm on oxygen 24-7. I'm eight hours away from Manti. So I won't be there, but I will be organizing demonstrations for each of these hearings. And eventually, if it makes it into a courthouse, which I pray that they are not able to just toss this out, we will have demonstrations at each of those the hour before it begins. So just know that going forward. Yeah, so May 3rd, uh, I guess one thirty Mountain Time. There will be a demonstration organized by Jenny Hatch on this. Um, and then 2.30 will be the actual court hearing on the motion to dismiss by Hamlin's defense attorney. And is, is it the same courthouse in Manti that they're going to have that? I think so. Okay. Well, we'll follow uh, it. And if it changes or they sneak, they're sneaky and they try to change the time or whatever, we'll, we'll follow it. And the other side of it is, what I didn't realize based on the available information was that all of the arguments for the motion to reconsider bail under Judge Griffin and American Fork, they took place in camera. That was in his chambers. There was never a formal hearing. So the prosecution and the victim's attorneys were proceeding under the notion that they would get a second bite at the apple, there would be like an actual hearing where they could present follow-up evidence that they didn't get to present in camera as to the harassment of the female victim in American Fork. And they didn't get that hearing. 
Judge Griffin just simply issued his ruling after the in-camera arguments. And didn't she now, didn't she say there was some attempt to hurt her while she was in her car? Is that what I remember? Yeah, there was apparently a package. There was like some attempt to harass her in person. Um, but apparently the prosecution did not have surveillance or anything available, like any physical evidence at the time of the in-camera hearing. Uh, and as a result, they didn't present anything in camera to Judge Griffin to back up their claims that this harassment was linked to David Lee Hamilton. Now, it's common sense. It's only one person who has motivation to harass that victim. And it's David Lee Hamlet, or someone connected to David Lee Hamlet. Because David Lee Hamlet is the one sitting in jail right now, uh, for the allegations against that victim, or for the allegations made by that victim against David Lee Hamlet. So, this, you know, he's the only one who has motive to bother her. Before he went to jail, she wasn't harassed or bothered. They said that yesterday. So, stands to reason that the simplest argument, the simplest explanation for this is the most likely, and that is that David Lee Hamlet has something or everything to do with why she's being harassed. Additionally, his alleged accomplices uh, from the 2012-2014 would have a very strong motive, but the abuse is, again, connected to David Lee Hamlin. He's the central figure in all of this. And so to say that, you know, because they don't have surveillance video, it has nothing to do with him, that's finally preposterous. Uh, but what else is really preposterous is the prosecution, quite frankly, wasn't ready. And as a result, they weren't ready to go with those in-camera arguments before Judge Griffin. Part of being successful in a, in a lawsuit is anticipating what's coming. And you would know as a prosecutor with any experience that a defense attorney is going to avail themselves of any opportunity they have on behalf of their client. And if you're making allegations, the burden of proof is on you to present evidence to substantiate those allegations. And the fact that Ryan Peters and Heidi Nestel apparently did not have substantive evidence at all to bolster their claims that the, the client was being harassed and that it had something to do with David Hanlon or one of his accomplices, that's on them. You know, I don't like what Judge Griffin did, but at the end of the day, it's the prosecution's job to present evidence to substantiate the claims that they're making. And if they didn't do that in American Fork, that's that's they're to blame for David Lee Hamlin getting bail. And from what I saw yesterday, like they were outflanked on, on in a lot of respects. I mean, you have to give it to Leigh Aston, you have to give it to Michael Petro. These are not bad attorneys, these are not incompetent attorneys. They have 
done a great job of turning a shit sandwich into Shinola. And they've done it. It took them six months to do it. But they've managed to get two court victories in the past two weeks that are ultimately going to result in David Lee Hamlin getting out of jail. He will be under home confinement with a GPS monitor and geofencing. He's barred from contact with anyone under 18. He can't even contact his immediate family. Um, I thought that was an interesting restriction. But, his, but his, his attorney did feel that it was an important step that be, he'd still be allowed to practice his religion. Does he even have one ounce of Native American blood in his body? Doesn't matter. Like the jurors, the the precedents in Utah. If you're a member of a Native American church at all, your ethnicity doesn't matter. Um, so the federal standard was you had to be a member of an Indian tribe. That was back in the '90s and early 2000s. That was liberalized uh, by the Utah Supreme Court and even by the U.S. Supreme Court to a degree. And that's why James Warren Flaming Eagle Mooney and David Lee Hamlin got off of the hook for possession of peyote with intent to distribute. I mean, James Warren Flaming Eagle Mooney, he was raided twice. And the sheriff confiscated 20,000 peyote buttons. Now, his healing circles, Mooney's little get-togethers, his little religious ceremonies had at most a couple of dozen people at a time. So the fact that he had 20,000 buttons of peyote, he clearly was not just using it for his group. He was distributing it to other people. He was selling it. And he turned it into a business. And David Lee Hamlin clearly has followed suit with his, quote, healing circles. Incidentally, yesterday, evidence was proffered by the prosecution that in 2020, Hamlin administered peyote to a 16-year-old girl at his healing circle. And Judge Larson blew right by that to say that there's no evidence, there's no clear and convincing evidence that the state has presented that Hamlin is a current danger to the community or to minors. Well, the prosecution presented evidence that he was in the form of that allegation. He's giving peyote to 16-year-olds at his healing circles. Well, the judge was very clear. He is not allowed to use marijuana even for medicinal purposes, but because he's a holy man and his Native American church. Actually said, you're going to have to have a separate hearing with supplemental briefing on the issue of a religious exemption for him to continue using peyote himself. So that, he's still restricted from using peyote. Well, just the fact that it was a thing, that they were even considering it, 
in my opinion, makes this whole thing just smell. Oh, this holy man, he needs to have access to his peyote while he's on house arrest. M meanwhile, we've got scores of victims in varying stages of emotional illness, trying to muster through life as best they can with no justice. And, and here we've got this attorney and this heartful judge saying, okay, you know, we'll think about giving this righteous and holy man his, his magic medicine. That part made me want to vomit. This is like if you read the Hamlin victim statements and the, the findings of fact and the custody order in his divorce, he used peyote in the abuse of minor victims. I know. That's my point. It is not just that he used it for his personal religious practices. He administered it to his daughter when she was his daughter, Miriam, I believe. She was like two, three, and four years of age, and he was trying to use her as an oracle while she was under the influence of peyote. And there's no interpretation of religious liberty that extends to letting someone use peyote on a two-year-old, which is what he was alleged to have done. Um, in, the, in the findings, in fact, the custody order, in his divorce, the court found by clear and convincing evidence that he had sexually abused two of his daughters and that he had given peyote to all four of his daughters when they were minors. And so if you want to say he can exercise his religious beliefs and use peyote, then fine, he can use it himself but he can't administer it to other people. Well, I'm a, I'm, a no. I'm a polemicist. I look at the extremes of our body politic and the culture and the zeitgeist. And I use that extreme to kind of help me clarify what's what. Over the last week or so, we've heard nothing from the media, but President Trump's going to be indicted, arrested, put in jail, locked up, handcuffs, for a crime that he may or may not have committed that at most was probably a misdemeanor, if anything. And then you have this demon, this criminal in Utah being treated with kid gloves, ignored by the media, mostly absolutely ignored, whether because the journalists are afraid, they don't care. They don't want to muddy their hands. They're nervous about blowback, whatever reason the journalists, have not taken on this case like they, I think they should. Uh, it's those two extremes, you know, the, the quiet we heard yesterday when you did a report, I, I did a little funny video report and then it was nothing. It was just, there's nothing to see here. It is this type of extreme in our current justice system that I feel like I just want to scream either in frustration or at the hilarity of it, but something has to give so that our journalists feel safe, that they can report things righteously and honestly. And it's it's not left to just independent journalists on their own sub stacks to try and hold people's feet to the fire. You know, to some extent I agree with you, to another extent, 
part of the benefit of being independent is that you have editorial control. You don't have a producer who's listening to a C-suite executive trying to restrict what you can report on. Um, and I think one of the biggest problems in the United States is all of our media is controlled by six major corporations. You're talking about at most 175 to 180 executives control about 90% of the information that you're going to read and listen to and watch on a daily basis. And that, that gives them a choke point on which stories go mainstream and, and viral and which don't. When you factor in the, the fact that social media is, consists of a handful of platforms, basically, that's going to be Facebook, it's going to be Twitter, it's going to be Instagram, which is owned by Facebook or Meta, and then you've got the search engines dominated by Google, uh, even if a corporate-owned or it considers to be in the public interest, those platforms can shut that story down. That's what they did with the Hunter Biden laptops. Um, they I, can also I currently, I currently, I'm completely brigaded at my blog, and I believe my Substack is also being intentionally messed with in terms of traffic. What do you think? Do I think that they like shadow ban? Yeah, I'm, ta I'm talking Google, all the search engines. I, I think they absolutely have my blog cordoned off. Do you think they're blocking your Substack? No. I, I think my Substack is kind of in the early stages of my, my building it. And I also work in a very specialized niche. I'm focused on one case and one group of individuals. Um, I intentionally don't talk about anything outside of those individuals. So my Substack is pretty much a niche Substack. That's by design. The, the downside of it is it kind of limits it to people in the states that were affected by David Lee Hamlin and and the people who are just really fascinated by the topic of, of satanic ritual abuse. So, for me, I understand I have a very specific niche that I'm appealing to. I don't have any evidence that Google is shadow banning me, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were. I would say that I get plenty of traffic the benefit of my traffic is it's not huge. On average, under a thousand people read an article on my subset, but in tracking the metrics, they read the articles. They are engaged. Yeah. I know. And I'll take a thousand engaged people over thirty to a hundred thousand hits any day of the week. I will too, and I feel that way about my my readers as well. They don't like or comment my stuff very much, and I get it, but uh, I have a lot of readers. 
So can you give us any sort of a teaser on this case you've been working on for the last month? I'm really curious to know who. Perhaps you can say something, perhaps you can't, but can you give us any any information about it? That particular angle came out of a, a real estate transaction. A lot of what I've done over the past couple of months is focus on property records. In fact, when I got your email to come on this podcast, I was doing a property records analysis of properties in uh, Utah County linked to a particular family. Um, but worked on the past month was a different family because there was the hypothesis that I've worked off of based on explicit statements in the Hamlin victim statements is that they only moved here an existing presence. You just started breaking up, which makes me wonder if somebody's concerned about what you're investigating. Now, uh, so basically, in the Hamlin victim statements, they say CS members move into areas where there is already an existing CS presence. Um, and from what I've found, based on the property records in Provo and the surrounding area, that appears to be absolutely true because the people who are named in the Hamlet victim statements, they only sell to other named CS members when they sell properties and they're clustered in certain neighborhoods down, you know, throughout Provo. I've gotten it down the street. So moving the duplexes, the condominium complexes, and they'll buy all of the units or most of the units. What stood out to me in some real estate transactions that I was analyzing and that somebody else was analyzing was they sold to a family that had not previously appeared on the radar before. Once we traced who that family was, we realized that it was the daughter of a very prominent uh, Utah family in terms of business. And we started taking a closer look at that family and there were two brothers in that family and their children that I focused on, um, especially one brother's sons. And those two sons, according to the sources, were involved in all manner of behavior that you wouldn't expect from a faithful and endowed Latter-day Saint with the temple recommends. And as I dug further, one of the brothers had been previously excommunicated. Another one was rumored to have been excommunicated for sexual misconduct with underage girls. Um, and as I followed it, I came across concrete evidence of tax evasion and tax fraud. I'm still working on that. I've come across circumstantial evidence of sex trafficking involving one of the brothers. And he's a very prominent businessman in Utah. You probably would know his name if I told you. Um, I pivoted from that 
and some other property records analysis to a different family that is prominent in business in Utah. And that family founded a company in the 1990s that took off like a rocket ship. Their name keeps showing up in property transactions in these, like, LDS Church of Satan neighborhoods where the known members are clustered. This family owns tons of properties in those neighborhoods. And when you look at the the transactions around those properties, they are buying and selling from the same people over and over again. They're in the same wards and stakes as the LDS Church of Satan in like two of the major stakes that I've located clusters in. I strongly suspect that they are involved in the LDS Church of Satan. I'm using property records and data to make that case. That will be one of my upcoming series of articles on the Substack. The reason it's taking so long is because to do your due diligence on this, you're talking about five, six pages worth of property records that you got to go through individually and build spreadsheets for so that you can do the analysis. I'm working on that. I have someone assisting me with it. Uh, and basically what I'm doing is building out those relationships to determine whether or not that family is a, is a church of state member and also whether or not the people that they are buying and selling with as it pertains to those properties in those specific neighborhoods are also LDS Church of State members. So it's like the iceberg. You see about 20% of the top, that's the people who appear in the Hamlin victim statements. 80% is submerged. You don't see it. But it is my hope that in doing property records analysis and talking to sources, we're going to be able to uncover the other 80%. And that's what I'm currently working on right now. Oh, that's awesome. I look forward to reading your reports. They definitely are riveting. And especially if they are people who are presenting to the world as faithful members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But in the dark recesses of their lives, they truly worship Satan. It is these sorts of stories, I believe, that will help the church that I love and the faith that I practice do better moving forward as it's exposed. In the very first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, it says that the wicked are going to have their stories shouted from the housetops and that they will shrink in shame because of what's being told about them. I believe we are literally fulfilling that prophecy right now by shouting from our own housetops to anybody interested hey, this is what's going on. These are the people who are messing with their kids, messing with everybody's minds, and it needs to be exposed. And I'm there for it. As long as I'm here, I'm there for it. And I like to have a good time while I'm doing it. You know, people may not get this dark humor that I engage in daily on my Substack, But as a child with my siblings and other friends who were involved in the network that I grew up in in Detroit, it was the dark humor that helped us to survive. And you often find this in totalitarian systems that where people feel like they are powerless and they're 
living their lives under the thumb of the people in control of them, they turn to the humor to help them cope. I'm still coping. I still have many concerns for my own family, for my own children and grandchildren. But I, I find my solace in my faith and in the humor. And so I try to be a happy warrior as I function as this keyboard warrior on my own Substack and on my various spaces around the web. And in my day-to-day -day life, I think most people would describe me as an upbeat and happy person most of the time. I don't like to wallow in my sadness. It just makes me feel worse. So I would encourage anyone who's listening to this, who's been victimized, who's now fretting because Hamlin's going to be out on bail, to just dig a little bit deeper and, and find the funny in it, find the happy place, and go forward. Because it's that lightness in our hearts that gives us the courage to, to not be bottled up with fear and to just go ahead and move forward. And so uh, whether you're healing yourself, still reconciling your own abuse, or you suspect that you were abused but still haven't quite remembered, I just want to encourage you. There are better days ahead. We're going to win this thing. In many ways, we've already won it because of Jesus Christ, and his atonement covers all of it. And as the truth comes out, our job is to, to just help Spread the good news. Yes, the truth is finally being told about these people, what they do, and who they worship. And we're all going to be healthier and happier for it. So, any final words, Goel? Oh, ditto for the most part. You know, I, I encourage people, if you're feeling angry and upset about it, let that be your fuel. Um, when I get tired or and my eyes are crossed from looking at spreadsheets or building spreadsheets all day um, or writing notes and whatnot. I just remember why I do it, and I remember what these people did, and it pisses me off, and it gives me fuel to keep going. Um, it gives me fuel to structure my life in terms of how I exercise and what I eat, to, to stay in optimum condition to do this kind of work and to get as much bang for the buck out of my time as possible in working. And being pissed off is my fuel for other people. Gallows humor might be their fuel, but what I tell survivors and people who are interested in activism alike is whatever it takes to get your ass in a gear, that's what you key in on. And for some people, it's the anger that they feel about what these people have done. For other people, it's the compassion for survivors. And for other people, it's kind of a dark humor or their overarching belief in God. Um... My favorite image of Christ is when he drove the money changers out of the temple at the end of a whip and kicked over their table. That is the Christ that I strive to emulate. A lot of people strive to emulate a more pacifist version of Christ. Um, I don't. To me, Christ is militant. He is revolutionary. He said something about millstones. 
Yeah, millstones around your neck. Right. Um, for me, the things that Christ said that were martial in tone are the things that I key in on. He, he came into the world with a sword to divide it. You know, fathers and like sons are going to turn against their fathers and vice versa. Uh, and for me, that's, you know, right on. You, you cast your lot with the truth and you let the chips fall where they may. And you go to war every single day for what you believe. You know, I got to tell you, there was one day I was reading that very passage the daughter against the mother and the father against the son. I was like, Father, what does this look like? And he said, Jen, look at your own family. And I had just gone on the outs with my own mother and my sibling. And I was like, oh, it's over this. It's over this very thing. This ritual abuse and this incest and this darkness. Yeah, that's what divides families. Yeah, because you can divide the world into two camps and, and, in those two camps, you get the people who oppose sin and call it what it is, which is sin. And then in the other camp, you got the people who embrace sin, but worse yet, they try to call sin righteous behavior. And that's what you see in like the liberal left in this country. They're trying to take abomination and normalize it. And then you've got the other part of their camp on that side, which are the people who don't oppose it overtly. They don't want conflict. And therefore, they wind up enabling those individuals who are trying to reclassify sin as like normal, regular behavior. Right. And you, you have a clear choice between those two camps. There's no gray areas there. The standard outlined in, in the scripture is very clear. There's no portion in scripture where incest is said to be okay. There's no portion in scripture where rape is said to be okay. There's no portion in scripture where adultery is said to be okay. There's no portion in scripture where extramarital or premarital sex is said to be okay. There's no portion in scripture where murder is said to be okay or where worshiping false gods is said to be okay. There's no portion in scripture that you can point to and say abortion or homosexuality or gay marriage are okay. There are tons of scriptures against those things. And the people who are trying to twist the scripture or to put it in a context that robs it of its clear meaning, they don't serve Heavenly Father or Christ or the Holy Spirit. We know who they serve. Well, and I will just add that in the Book of Mormon, it makes it abundantly clear that the powers that be in those ancient civilizations that upheld the blood oaths and the murders and the adultery and the infrastructure of evil and didn't expose it and didn't deal with it 
one of those civilizations descended from a thriving republic down to living in tribes within six years. It collapsed very rapidly. And I think we're at the tipping point right now with our civilization in the world, but mostly in America, where we also have that same decision to make. Are we going to deal with these things? Are we going to expose, boldly expose, and hold people accountable for their crimes, especially those who are in government? But in any leadership position, are we going to hold them accountable? Or are we just going to whistle past the graveyard, shove it under the rug, pretend all is well in Zion, and go on our merry way? That's the decision we have to make today. And that's why I have so much respect for the 12 people who showed up yesterday in person to protest against this man getting out on bail. I said they're the 12 bravest people in Utah because they know exactly what risk they took to show up in person at that event. And they did it anyway. No fear. I'm so proud of them. And I hope others will join future events because it's a way for you as an individual to stand up and say, no, I am not going to participate in this cover-up. I'm going to demand justice from the justice system. I can do no less because I want our republic to thrive and rise again beyond all this madness. No, that's the only way the republic does thrive is if it thrives in righteousness. Sin leads to degradation and those who tolerate it or who allow it to be classified as quote-unquote normal or acceptable behavior inevitably aid in the degradation of society. And they are the agents of evil. Whether it's wittingly or unwittingly, that is what they are. And for those of us who strive for that standard in our own lives, we're not perfect people. But we are actively and sincerely and earnestly striving to implement that standard in our own lives. To tend to our doorstep before we concern ourselves with what's on other people's doorsteps. Uh, we know that we cannot sit with those people. We cannot enter into accords with those people. We can't eat with those people. We can't have any fellowship with those people whatsoever because good gains nothing by association with evil. And we have a duty to actively oppose what those people are, are attempting to advance at every turn. And it, it is not in a spirit of timidity that we are compelled to act if you believe that you have the atonement of Jesus Christ you have nothing to lose they can't kill you you will live forever that's right and as a result your life should be marked by boldness one of the biggest problems I have with Christianity is how many Christians are afraid of dying Because to me, if tomorrow my father decides to call me home and he says, your life ends tomorrow under these circumstances, the worst that can happen to me is I'm going home. 
I'm going to go be with him. So why would I worry? That's my position. Yeah, so to me it's like you have every reason to live boldly. You have been liberated from the consequence of death. You have eternal life. Live boldly. Swing for the fences. Yeah. Well, and for those journalists out there who think that I'm the story or investigations at ritual abuse is the story, I'm here to tell you we're not the story. We're just the whistleblowers. We're just the journalists telling the story. It's your job to go find the story and report fairly and accurately on the story that who did what, who's the guilty party. You know, the whistleblowers are not the story. This is what I've observed with the Twitter files. The journalists all want to go after Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger and all the others who are telling what's happening in Twitter, but they don't want to talk about the actual evidence. It's the same thing here. Don't bother trying to write stories on me or Goel or anyone else who's talking about this. You'll go write some stories on David Hamblin. No, a good part of that is they're bad faith actors, Jenny. So the last thing that they want to do is write stories about the likes of David P. Hamlet. They want to write hit pieces on people who covered David Lee Hamlet. And the reason for that is a lot of the shareholder class is involved in the types of activities that David Lee Hamlet committed. And that's a sad fact in our story. Our country will only ever be as good as its elites. And the sad part about America right now is that our elites are not good people. They don't have good moral character. They don't have personal integrity. And I would argue that our society reflects that. And until we fix that, until we make the incentives weighted to where only people with good moral character and integrity can attain status as a social or economic elite in this country, and that maintaining good character and manifesting integrity are the means in which you maintain your status within the elite, then this country will continue to have the problems that it it so clearly and evidently has. And right now we reward bad character, bad faith, and low integrity. And you see that in the current drama within our banking system. Um, you see people getting paid to fail at, at, in the C-suites. So if you get fired from your job as a regular person, you're just fired. If you get fired from your job as a CEO or a professional sports franchise coach or, or manager, you get millions of dollars paid to you when essentially you didn't do a good enough job to stay on the job. And so it is increasingly apparent to most people in this country that there are two different standards. And the standard for people in the lower classes is that in order to be rewarded, you have to demonstrate some form of success. You have to be good at your job. And once people reach a certain level 
in our society, it transitions to where they'll always fail upwards. And that has to stop. Yeah, there's no better example of that than Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump has had six corporate bankruptcies. No, 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 no. Don't go down that path. This is my podcast. I will not allow you to besmirch the God Emperor. Joy of, joy of my heart. Resignation. And you know it. No, nope, I do not know it. I believe he is saving the world. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, we can agree to disagree. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. Not a, not on my show. You're not. I just said it. No, I blocked you up by covering it up with my words. Mm-hmm. We're just going to have to agree to disagree, and this is probably a good place to stop. So, thank you for coming <laughs> on the show. I appreciate your con- contribution. And hopefully we will talk another day, but you will not besmirch President Trump in my presence. Okay. All right. I'll talk to you later. Thanks for having me on. All right. Goodbye.